2: The word color is definitely a word I don't care for <laughs> at, at all because I, I understand the, the history behind the word, but I stand behind why why I use the word for the response that it's getting at this moment.
1: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, playwright Kenan Scott II
2: talks about how he found his calling. Me being fortunate enough at an early age to realize that my purpose is storytelling.
0: COVID has been very, very bad for theater. From ushers to lighting directors to actors, there was no work for well over a year. But playwrights could still write, and as theaters slowly welcome audiences back, we finally get to see what some of them have been up to. Among the most anticipated plays of the season is the Broadway debut of Kenan Scott II's Thoughts of a Colored Man at the Golden Theater. Keenan Scott is a playwright, yes, but he's also a poet, an actor, a director, and a producer. He joins me to talk today about his play and his career. Keenan Scott II, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. I'm very excited to talk to you about your life and your work. Mm -hmm. Keenan, I understand that your father was a New York policeman and your grandfather was a Vietnam veteran. Yes. So I'm guessing that you're coming from a long line of heroes.
2: Yes. And my great grandfather was actually in World War II. So I I come from a lineage of military veterans uh, for this country as well as servicemen, which my father was. Um, he works for NYPD uh, for 21 years.
0: How do you feel now about the way that the police and sort of non-police are managing this complicated time?
2: You know, that, that's a tough one. Um, my plight as a young Black man hasn't afforded me to still avoid Uh, the negative sometimes interactions and relationships between myself and police officers. Um, I do know that, you know, through my father, there are a lot of hardworking, honest, straightforward police officers that just want to go out, do their job, be safe and return home to their families. Um, But unfortunately, as we know, due to others, their attitudes and their actions have pretty much uh, blanket all of the police force. Um, I think more so the issue is when those bad apples do do something, truly being held accountable. Like I was an educator for 11 years. And I know for us, um, when things happen, when, when, when teachers don't always do the right thing, they are held accountable and you will not see them as a teacher again. And I think uh, everybody can understand that. And just like teaching uh, firefighters, uh, police officers, I think these are high mo- uh, morality jobs. Right. Um, But I think it's also the responsibility of these institutions and these workforce to hold their own accountable. And I think that's what uh, the people want to see. And I think, honestly, that's what the black community wants to see. So um, this has been an ongoing problem um, historically in the black community, um, even looking back how the police force was originally created in this country and, and who they were created to patrol. So that's kind of a hard question for me to answer. Um, But I would say, you know, I I do notice some, some great officers out there doing their jobs. I think the ones that don't do a great job just need to be held accountable like everybody else.
0: You grew up in Flushing, Queens in the Pominock Housing Project. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent many years of my childhood in Howard Beach, Queens, by the way.
2: I lived in, How- I lived in Howard Beach for like three or four years, actually. Um, but so I am familiar with Howard Beach as well. I lived there as an adult. Um,
0: oh, OK. I was going to say, where did you go to elementary school? No, 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 no. It was, this, was,
2: <laughs> this was as an adult. That was a, a small portion of my life. But yes, I, I grew up um, in, in Flushing, I'm in Palminar Houses, and I attended PS200 while I was there on Jewel
0: Avenue. Even though where, where you grew up, there was a police precinct across the street. Literally. Um, you've written about how you could watch fights with boys with razor blades under their tongues. Mm-hmm. And you've written about how fighting showed you that you were a man that could survive in a city where many are raised by wolves. Mm-hmm. I mean, aside from it being absolutely beautifully written, it is, it is somewhat horrifying to think that that's what it felt like as you were growing up. How did you feel like you could survive where many are raised by wolves?
2: You don't know. And, and that is the danger of it all. Um, unfortunately, people outside of the community don't realize that there are things that the youth and people have to partake in for survival. Um, and a lot of times it's not by choice. You know, I grew up a shy kid. You know, I, I didn't want to. You know, I wasn't picking on nobody. I stayed out of people's way. I was quiet. I didn't want to fight nobody. But um, due to, you know, now we're talking early '90s New York, there were certain things that we 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 had to do. And I was I was raised to protect myself. And um, unfortunately, a lot of times I was in situations where I had to do so. Um, but the, the the true danger of it all in those environments is 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 not knowing what What is going to happen, what the next day is going to bring, and that's the part that that gets scary when growing up in environments like that. A lot of it seems uh natural. I was seeing you know um at times the drugs the 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 violence and things of that nature, but on the flip side, my childhood was beautiful, you know it was a vibrant time in New York it was you know hip hop was at its height, and in my storytelling, I try to show. Both, both sides of it, because it wasn't just all one way. Um, but, but absolutely, um, there, was, there was a lot of things that I experienced um, growing up in the projects in New York, like, like many others.
0: I understand you saw the movie Toy Story when you were seven years old and decided right then and there that you wanted to work for Pixar. Um, yes. Did you want to work in animation or did you want to work in storytelling?
2: Animation, animation. So I, I always like to say my God-given talent is drawing. Um, I've been doing it since I could remember. I don't remember a time starting anything I could get my hands on, whether that was, you know, crayons to to charcoals to watercolors. So that's like my 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 first love in life. And I believe Toy Story, the first one came out seven. I was like seven, eight years old, I believe. So that's about 94. I think the movie came out Um, and it changed my life. I, I remember. Uh, Asking teachers and asking my parents to say, Hey, what is that called? What is that? And remembering it being so new, but somebody telling me, Hey, those are computer animators. So, most of my life growing up, I I always told people, I want to, you know, I want to go into computer animation, not owning a computer or even knowing how all of that worked. I just knew. Whatever Toy Story, whoever created that, I wanna, I wanna do that. So, so um, I still have dreams of working for Pixar. Um, most likely, it will be on the storytelling side, maybe some voice acting. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, Pixar very much so was a dream for me growing up.
0: You've talked about how, as you were growing up, adults treated your adolescent emotional life as that of someone much older than you, Mm -hmm. which held you to a higher standard than your white classmates. I'm assuming that this is a common denominator for young boys of color. Mm -hmm. How did you manage that emotionally? How did you feel as you witnessed this sort of different standard for the boys around you?
2: you know as 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 a young kid um it angers you um because as a kid, you still notice the treatment is different um hmm. and we see that often in the news now when when a when it when a young black boy loses his life, he's usually described as a man, and he is a child. um my white counterparts males they're still considered boys up into college age, <laughs> you know, so me being an educator. Um, Even looking back at my youth, realizing um, how easy it is for us to slip through those cracks just from the difference of reading level. When certain behavior is exhibited, it's treated more harshly. Um, we, We are suspended more because of the learning curve. We are sent to special education more than our white counterparts. And these are things that I might not have had the terms for when I was a boy, but I definitely did feel that. And that treatment is internalized. And that rage starts bubbling, that anger starts to start this fire inside you where you don't really know um, how to explain it or where it comes from as an adolescent. And those things and, and it can be acted out in different ways, right? Whether that's uh, frustration towards your peers, adults, um, authority. We have to learn how to handle adult situations before we're even adults. And that's a very hard thing to navigate. Um, so for myself, I've always had a village around me. Um, my, my, my family has always been here to support me. I was raised by a village and I contribute who I am to them and, and them pouring in confidence, in love, in joy, um, self-awareness and all of those things that my family gave me, which I know some of some of my, uh, my peers didn't have. Um, and, 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 and their lives took very, you know, different paths than myself. So I've contributed a lot of that to, um, my family, the village that raised me, um, and God, I always feel like God has had his hand on me. Um, and, but here I am and, and I can only, you know, do do the best I can do and try to be the best person I can be.
0: Well, you've talked about how that frustration and that anger was met outside the house with, punishment instead of care and understanding, absolutely, mm-hmm. seems to actually perpetuate the problem and make it worse. Absolutely. How did you begin to understand how to make sense of that frustration and that anger and, and ultimately that rage?
2: It just came in time. There's really not one answer for it. I just know as I matured, as I started to experience more things, my frustration and my anger got fueled and put into my art. Um, and to me playing sports, you know, um, I was very much so focused on playing football and basketball, growing up basketball, being my main sport, me always being an artist and always funneling that energy, um, inward and into, into those things, especially my art, um, eventually into my performing and writing. So for me, that was my saving grace and, you know, now being married, Um, With the child, um, I've become way more retrospective about my thinking and my acting um, because it's not just for myself, um, it's for my family. So me, I'm always on a quest, spiritually, to be the best person I can be, um, be the best leader I can be for my household, be the best husband, be the best father, um, be the best brother and friend. It's, it's, It's evolution.
0: You moved to the suburbs of Maryland as you were about to go into high school where you, as you mentioned, were playing football, but also writing poetry. That's quite a range. <laughs> what first motivated you to turn to poetry as a way to express yourself? So
2: actually, I moved, I moved to the suburbs of Maryland before I got to junior high school. For me, growing up especially elementary school, the beginning parts of junior high, um, I struggled academically, um, especially when it came to English. Um, I always excelled in all my art classes and things like that, but I didn't realize until I was older that I was actually dyslexic. So therefore, it affected my learning and how I received information as a child. And I would say that I never had a teacher take the time to figure that out about me and figure out what my strengths were. So, I could excel academically. And that goes back, connects to the conversation we just had about um, how young black boys are viewed older than what they are. You know, I almost slipped through the cracks because with young black boys, we're often not um, approached with care and, and patience. So, therefore, it's like, oh, if the struggle academically, you need to go to special education. And that's where I was sent for many of my courses. Um, it wasn't until sixth grade. I was, after elementary school, I was, I was put in all special ed classes. So when I was a youth, talking back in the 90s, um, there wasn't inclusion classes. So when you was in special ed, usually you was in a basement, you was in around the corner, you was in a classroom that was off, away from everybody else. And I remember being in sixth grade. A lot of my peers w- weren't in special education. They was in, you know, regular courses and or um, honors courses. And um, at that time, I I internalized that in a way to where it made me feel dumb. So I never forget asking my guidance counselor to put me in all honors classes, which is wild, right? To go from special education to skip regular average courses, what they called it, they called it average classes to honors. And um, my goddess counselor said, are you sure that's not a usual? I said, yes, I want to be in all honest classes, such and such. My friends, they're doing it. I hang out with them every day. I think I can do it, too. And kudos to my mother. Uh, she said, if Keenan says he can handle those classes, then he can handle it. From that day forward, I was never in special ed classes again. Um, sixth grade was the last time. Um, and I say that to say, I never viewed myself as Uh, A great academic student, that was my sister, the straight A student, (laughs) my older sister, um, got to eighth grade, got a poetry assignment. After turning in the poetry assignment, it was written so well that the teacher thought I plagiarized it. But it wasn't until that moment where that reaction showed me that, that I can write creatively better than most. And then after that, um, I started just writing to myself and use it as a personal journal to get my emotions and feelings out, um, which is, the, I guess, the, the cliché uh, story for every poet. Um, and it wasn't to the age of 15 that uh, my sister's boyfriend at the time, he wanted to start going to poetry venues and he didn't want to go by himself. So he asked me to go to the club with him uh, to perform. I was 15 at the time, had no desire to perform or anything like that and uh, went to the club and I did horrible, <laughs> did horrible, <laughs> forgot my poem on stage, blacked out, had to start over again. Um, it, it just wasn't a good night for me. Um, and from that moment, I didn't want to do it again. Um, but my competitive nature kicked in. I'm very competitive. Um I told myself, I have to redeem myself. I at least have to go back one time, redeem myself, do well. I can't leave on a note like that.
0: Do you remember any of the poems that you performed at that time?
2: No. (laughs) Unless I I recorded it and or somebody filmed me doing it, those are pieces that I haven't done in 15 plus years. so, no, but, um, you know, I went away. I studied for, for several months, turning 16. By the time I returned, um, w- went back to the drawing board, started reading a lot of uh, poetry, a lot of Nikki Giovanni, Langston Hughes. Um, I discovered Deaf Poetry Jam, which was uh, two seasons in at the time. So it was a new show on HBO. Um, I had to buy or find the DVDs because um, we didn't have cable. So went back to the club and I, I did great. Um, way smaller audience this time around, <laughs> um, but I did great and people were um, taken back by me and were shocked to find out that I was 16 years old. That's when I got bit by the bug and and I went from there and then I started going back again. And again, and I, and I loved it because it was like a double life for me. I was going into the city, you know, at night to perform and compete against adults. And then I was going going back home and getting ready for class in the morning for high school. So that really led me on a path to, you know, where I am today.
0: What made you decide to study acting at Frostburg State University in Maryland as opposed to poetry or animation?
2: My focus has shifted um, from drawing and animation and After I had been performing for about three, maybe four years now on stage before college. And I had aspirations of wanting to now act and write and direct and all of those things for TV and film. And somebody told me if I wanted to act on film, I had to learn how to act on stage. So I said, okay, cool. I said, if I, if I go to school and I study performing on stage, I was already a performance poet. I figured that would be a subject that would keep me in school and something that I would be passionate about. I didn't, I didn't want to go to college and, um, just get like a business degree or something like that. It wouldn't have kept me there, to be honest. And that's when I decided to study acting in, in Frostburg.
0: At school, you found that the professors stuck closely to the classic canon of playwrights like Chekhov, Arthur Miller, Ibsen, Tennessee Williams, Shakespeare. And while you grew to appreciate this work, you didn't see yourself or your community in their prose. Back then, did you find any work that reflected your world?
2: No, not at all. And that's definitely not all of my professors either. Um, I I think that's a, a... Institutional problem, um, that, that has to change. Um, I think there's way more works, um, that, that are in the American canon now, um, compared to even 15 years ago. There wasn't a Love, uh, Jeremy O'Harris, uh, uh, Katori Hall in, in the form she is now, um, a Dominique Morso and so forth. I can name many now. Um, so yes, my professors exposed the program to the classics um, as well as they did expose us. Um, I did discover in Tozaki from my professor Marizzi during my sophomore year. More so, there weren't any stories that spoke to me in my generation. There was no contemporary stories that I was exposed to and or put in front of me at that time that I could say, hey, this is me. This is my community. I can see it on stage. It didn't exist. So as a poet, um, I figured... Instead of complaining about it, I wanted to create what I didn't see. And I, and, and it was a small, novel idea, really. It was myself. There might have been four Black men in the program. I was like, hey, I want to write something where if we stood on stage, it would represent us. We could talk the way we want to. We could walk the way we want to. We wouldn't have to try to fit in a box where we wouldn't have to change who we were. Me being from New York, one of my partners being from D.C., another being from Baltimore. I wanted to create something that we can hold on to. And really, that was my mission. And not realizing that that was was the origins of me writing Thoughts of a Colored Man back when I was a sophomore and undergrad.
0: What was the reaction to the early iterations of Thoughts of a Colored Man from your professors?
2: They loved it they were the ones who gave me the space to produce it. Um, I love them to death. To this day, they still support me. They travel wherever I go. They were the ones who first gave me the first seed money, (laughs) which I believe at the time might have been like, you know, $100, which was great. So they they were the ones that truly supported and believed I could do it and gave me the chance to because usually student projects of that nature to do a play, an original work, uh, usually comes from the directing track. I was on an acting track so for them to even allow me to do something like that not even being on that track was amazing and that's when i uh realized how important it was because i was doing it out of necessity but how important it was to produce to be a producer i had to be the director because there was nobody else that could bring this vision to life right because it was it was new nobody knew what it was but me um i became an acting coach because at the time There was only two, I believe, black men at the time in the program that could even be in a play. So we didn't even have enough men in our department to fulfill all the seven roles. So I had to enlist my friends on campus that never acted before. So I became an acting coach. So out of necessity, I started wearing all of these hats. and, And that's what showed me it was important to own my own narratives. And I feel like there was a large population on my campus that felt included and felt welcomed and invited um, because of they knew who I was and what I stood for. And it became a huge success on my campus. Huge, yeah, huge success. Yeah, I heard success. that all,
0: sh- all the shows sold out in two hours.
2: Absolutely, which was a shock to me. And that right there showed me that I had more than just this small idea, right? So if it wasn't for Frostburg showing me that I had some some inkling of, of of a career in producing and directing and doing all those things, I would have never... Thought that for myself.
1: Hey, y'all, it's Elise. I have another podcast to tell you about. It's called In the Making. It's an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. It'll probably inspire you no matter what you do. I know it certainly did for me. Search for In the Making in your podcast player. My thanks to In the Making and Adobe Express for their support.
0: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. You stated that you used this specific word colored to spark a visceral reaction like it did during the civil and pre-civil rights days. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the word now?
2: It's definitely a word I don't care for <laughs> at, at all, because I, I understand the, the history behind the word. But I stand behind why why I use the word for the response that it's getting at this moment, because right. um, it's sparking a conversation It's having people like yourself and many, many others asking why use that? What's the reason behind it? And when they find out what the reason is... They understand it. And for this particular show about stereotypes and tropes and dispelling them and turning them on its head, realizing that using the word colored, because that was a time that my people were labeled with that, coupled with the show, it makes sense to use that as well as when I tell people it pays homage to um, the literary works that I've read in the past, the the great writers and revolutionaries and artists that I followed, whether it's for Color girls, whether it's colored museums and literary works of that nature, I wanted to pay homage to them as well.
0: You not only use it in the title, you also use it as part of the stage setting with the Mm -hmm. word very prominently, just the word colored across the screen that exists on the stage, Mm -hmm. the billboard. Yeah, That was something that was extremely in your face.
2: Yes, um, and I cannot take credit for that. That idea was by our brilliant uh, set designer, Robert Brill, and he wanted to do exactly that, what you just said. He wanted it to be in your face. He knew by putting the word color that big, because our billboard is, is true to size, he wanted the audience to be confronted by the word and already bringing their pre-conceived uh, ideas and thoughts of the word colored. And he wanted them to have a feeling right when they walked into the theater and he wanted everybody to be confronted with the word colored, knowing that this piece, you will be confronting a lot as a human being. It just so happens this story is told through the lens of black men, but it's it's a human story where this mirror not only turns to ourselves as Black men in the Black community, but it also turns the mirror to society as well for them to look into. So um, that's why he chose to put the word colored on the billboard. And I, I, I thought it was a brilliant idea when he first brought that to myself and our director, Steve Broad next to third.
0: It reminded me a little bit of the mirror that's on stage in Jeremy O. Harris's Slave Play. Mm. Um, it's a particularly rich time on Broadway right now mm-hmm. with productions like yours, Thank Jeremy's, you. the several plays that Lynn Nottage has opening, mm-hmm. um, Antoinette Nuwandu's play, Pass Over. Do you think that this is what we will see to be the norm in terms of diversity and representation on Broadway now? Or do you think it's a response to the times, but not a permanent change. What Are you, what are you, are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic about this?
2: I, I feel very optimistic, but I do feel like in large part because of the amount, it is a response to what happened last year and gatekeepers and the owners of theaters being called out. I think it will take more time to see if this is a permanent change. I hope more voices are championed and produced from disenfranchised communities, not just the Black community, but all communities. Yes, this is the first time seven, I think the number's even growing. I think it might be up to nine now, um, Black playwrights coming to Broadway. But in actuality, outside of stories that are driven usually by white males in the theater space, there hasn't been seven, eight, nine of the uh, um, type of plays all at the same time on Broadway Ever. 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 There 's never been eight plays from the LGBT community at the same time there 's never been seven plays from an Asian lens at the same time, Hispanic and so forth and so forth. So we are on the front lines of of protest and hopefully this is a time where we, we are opening the doors for everybody to show that we we, we all should be here, that our stages should reflect. The, the society and a world that we truly live in and our stages haven't done that yet. Um, we are inching closer and I'm very optimistic. I am very humbled and blessed to be a part of a season that is bringing forth this change and the conversation. And I appreciate um, the Schubert's championing my voice them giving us a verbal commitment before the actions of last year. You know, um, the Schuberts were supporting this piece in my voice and me as an artist back in 2019 when we were doing our regional run before um, the events of last year, before the pandemic. So I I, I can confidently say that the Schuberts were, were already putting their best foot forward
0: Before the Schubert's, though, and I would say from 2009 through to 2017, 2018, you were developing and workshopping Thoughts of a Colored Man independently. You were maxing out your credit cards, saving Mm -hmm. up money, turning Mm -hmm. to your family members, um, making them investors, producing the play in independent houses up and down the East Coast. Yes. What gave you the sense that this play deserved its moment?
2: I've written other works um, that people will see in the near future. I've auditioned for a lot of things. I've been a part of a lot of other projects. It was always something special about this project. And really, it was the voice of the people. I can't tell you how many times I heard messages of, uh, can you bring thoughts to my city? Uh when are you going to do it again? I missed it because, you know, back then I was only able to uh, afford doing it for like a weekend. So it's it's messages from young black artists that I receive all the time um, about how inspiring the play is, um, how seeing me and my journey gave them the confidence to not quit or not to give up. And, and hearing and seeing things like that over the years has truly given me the, the confidence in myself and his story to keep on going Because of how important I saw it was to so many people and me being fortunate enough at an early age to realize that my purpose is storytelling. Regardless of the medium, stage, TV, film, music, poetry, painting, you know, I am a storyteller. And knowing that that is my purpose and realizing my gift, I think Pablo Picasso said it, you know, once realizing your gift, now it's your life's purpose to give it away.
0: Over the years, how has the story within the play, how has the play itself evolved? You've been working on it, workshopping it, developing and and producing it now for well over a decade. Mm -hmm. How has the story changed, if at all?
2: I started writing when I was 19. Um, Now I'm 34, going on 35, married with a daughter Um, I am a different person mentally. These characters literally have grown up with me. (laughs) Um, So as, as I grew, they grew. As I experienced things, as I saw the world change around me and things happen around me, so did the play. People always ask me, why did I choose to set it in Brooklyn and not Queens where I'm from? And when the threat of gentrification came in, I thought there was no better place but to showcase the old and new in gentrification in Brooklyn. And while I was honing in a lot on those details and nuances of location and and themes throughout the piece, I was living in Brooklyn. Um, And I was seeing the effects of gentrification, uh, remembering how Brooklyn was as a kid when I used to come and visit my grandfather that lives here. But of course, going forward, The way I designed and written this play, it could really take place in any space that's experiencing urban renewal. Um, So this play has definitely evolved over the years. I have been blessed to work with tremendous, tremendous artists. And as an actor, I lean on my actors when I work with them. So this play wouldn't be what it is if I didn't work with the incredible artists I have over the years as they brought their experiences to the table. So there's a little bit of DNA and and a little bit of everybody I worked with over the years as well. So I can't take all that credit. So the play has definitely changed since I first wrote it 15 years ago.
0: The seven characters of the play who all come together in a barber shop are based on what you've described as the seven emotions that black men go through during the course of a lifetime. Wisdom, passion, depression, lust, happiness, love, and anger. What about other words like joy or frustration or discrimination or rage?
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't think those are the, the definitive seven. Those are the seven I decided to go with. But like you said, there's many, many more. As we know, there's hundreds, hundreds and thousands um, uh, uh, of different feelings and emotions we have as human beings. But those are the seven that um, I decided to land on because those were the seven parts of myself, I felt like, at the time when I first started writing it.
0: The seven characters range in age from late teens to mid-60s and Mm -hmm. the elder wisdom brilliantly played by Esau Pritchett speaks about respect history and ancestry Tristan Mack Wilds plays anger and laments consumerism and the objectification of black athletes Brian Terrell Clark plays the character of happiness and challenges notions about black struggle and class with his success and his money and his orientation Talk about the role of stereotypes and tropes that you're trying to dispel.
2: Too too often in entertainment, we are often portrayed as the athlete, the gangster, someone um, of low education, fatherless, and the list goes on. I wanted to create a piece to not show the perfect Black man but to show the Black man in its entirety. And in doing that, you have to show the good, the bad, and the ugly, because that is the human experience. One of the things I follow in my storytelling is what Langston Hughes said. He said, we are good and ugly too. So showing a story of spectrum to show a true human story, to be able to build empathy in its reader or or, or viewer, that doesn't mean to create a, a perfectly politically correct unflawed character showing a human story is showing someone in all of their flaws because that's where you get the relatability and that's what i wanted to create in these men and i wanted to show them in different ways i wanted to show a business owner an entrepreneur in wisdom i wanted to show a husband who is happily married to a black woman and they're excited uh, that their child is on the way we don't often see that um yes I have the athlete, but we often don't see what happens or how that athlete feels when they are discarded, when they can no longer be superhuman on the court or the field. Who are they as human beings? I wanted to also show that the the young guy that don't know no better, (laughs) you know, that all he wants to do is chase women. And, and, and really doesn't even know who, who he is yet because he's only a 20 year old and making all the mistakes in the world. I wanted to show a character that was full body and just happened to be gay because none of us uh, should be portrayed in that singular way. You know, I wanted to show him and him have the representation of being from a different class and being able to have those conversations centered around not only identity sexually, but identity as far as class and community and culture um, So these are the things and the layers that I wanted to show that are not often shown um, for black men. And when they are, normally all of these men are not seen together. And you would think that all of these men could not exist. And they do. These men walk around my community and all the communities that I've ever, ever lived in. And that's what I wanted to showcase. I wanted to show the spectrum all at the same time to see the range, to show that we are not monolithic.
0: I loved the way you wrote the character who we ultimately find out is gay Mm -hmm. because until he states that he is and he's talking about his relationship, I think most of the people in the audience just assumed that he was a heterosexual man talking about his wife. And I loved the way you played with us in that way. Keenan, you say you don't write perfect characters, that you create them all to be flawed, mm-hmm. because that's where we see humanity. Mm-hmm. What do you think the, are the flaws that make us most human?
2: All of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's hard to pick one, right? As human beings, we, we are so flawed. We, we, at times, have egos. We fall into temptation. We lack discernment. At times, there's a lot of things that I can name. But I think um, through all of those flaws, hopefully, um, most of us are on a journey to avoid those mistakes, fix our flaws, be the best person we can be until we reach out in days. That's what makes the human existence beautiful. um, That most of us internally don't want to dwell in our shortcomings and our flaws, and we want to set ourselves on a journey to correct all of those things. And I think that's what makes our existence beautiful.
0: You've said that you identify most with your character named passion. Yes. Why is that?
2: I'm a passionate person. I've always, I always have been when I, when I often speak my passion get gets confused to something else because, you know, um, I speak very passionate, of very high energy, especially when it comes to my art and, and things that I love. And I've, I've always been driven by my passion. I've, I've always, regardless of what I was doing in life, whether that was football, basketball, painting, writing, I was always very passionate about it and very disciplined about it. Um, and like the character of Passion, me also being an educator, I was I was passionate about the youth, and I was passionate about helping them and saving them in the best way I could, whether that was showing them that I am them and there is a way out. And and the negative things and choices can be avoided. Um, so for me, the character of Passion um was always very close to me and probably has most of my DNA in that character.
0: Passion also delivers the last message of the play, he has the last the last mm-hmm. bit to say. Is that a, a moment of optimism you're trying to provide?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I've, I've always been optimistic uh, more at sometimes than others, um, but I, I'm, I'm naturally an optimistic person. And I think in the entertainment field, you have to be extremely optimistic because you spend most of your career hearing no's until you might hear that one yes and hopefully string that one yes to another yes and hopefully create a sustainable career. But um, in this field, I think you have to be so optimistic about what's to come, where your career is going to go, the tasks that you're trying to fulfill and uh, the goals that you're trying to acquire gets you to a certain point. So I think just naturally, I've, I've always been an optimistic person
0: you really created this play now on Broadway through the sheer force of your will. Um, But Mm -hmm. you're not just doing that, (laughs) you're doing other things as well. Um, So the last few things that I want to talk with you about are two other endeavors you're involved in. First, you were awarded a TED Fellowship. (laughs) Um, The (laughs) TED Fellowship recognizes individuals at work on world-changing ideas and provides them with tools to amplify the power of their vision. What has the collaboration with Ted been like for you?
2: Ted has been phenomenal. Like I told them, I joke with them and I joked with my cohort. I've never felt so unimportant in my life.
1: (laughs) What is that?
2: In a positive way. And I say that to say, when I first met my cohort, I felt so honored and privileged to be in this fellowship. Because all through Zoom, because we were still in a pandemic, everybody was from a different country. People were from all over the world. I've never been a part of an organization or a group like that um, internationally. People were from New Delhi, Nigeria. I remember going around the room, the virtual room, and everybody saying what time it was. It was 8 o'clock in the morning for some people, and it was 10 o'clock at night for others. And it just it blew my mind. And as we introduced ourselves and said what we do... One individual is uh, responsible for refrigerating vaccines for diseases that go to third world countries. Um, another was a photojournalist that helped find and save girls from sex trafficking in in India. And here I am, playwright. <laughs> so for me, I jokingly say that, but I mean it in the most powerful way that I've never felt so unimportant in my life because being with these innovators and inventors and scientists realizing that these are the people that are so unsung. And from my profession, it's easy to gain attention, I guess, because of the way we view entertainment and celebrities and actors and and notable figures. But here I am on a call with people that are literally saving lives. So I can't say enough how much it means to be a Ted fellow and for now and forever to be a part of the Ted community its, it's, it's such a beautiful community. And I, I'm just so honored to be a part of it.
0: My last question is about your newest work. I understand you're already developing your next stage play, which is titled the migration LP. Mm-hmm. And you're also working on a television pilot for universal. So tell yes. us about both of these projects, please.
2: Amazing. Um, The Migration LP is a very important piece to me where I wanted to show how the family's lineage and legacy lasts throughout. Um, the years. So really, it starts in the 1920s about a father that wants to move to Harlem because he's a dreamer, he's a performer, and he wants to move to Harlem from the South to better his family. But throughout the play, we see what that decision does for his lineage throughout the decades of American history. So we explore the 70s, the 40s, the 90s and the now. And we see how that one decision back in the 20s that father made for his family, how it affects his lineage um, throughout different decades of American history. And I think it's a beautiful piece. Um, Amazing characters. It's over 20 characters in the play. Hopefully it'll be on a stage somewhere in the city. Um, next year, for people to be able to see, fingers crossed, I'm still working on those things. Um, my pilot at Universal, I can't speak on exactly what the idea is, but I'm very excited to be working with Universal and, and to be developing my first TV pilot commercially with, with such a great, great studio. That's a project that um, hopefully people will see on the screen here, here in the near future, but it's, it's, it's also a great project. So um, I'm very excited about the, the pilot that I'm doing over at Universal as well.
0: Kenan Scott, thank you for making such good and important work. Thank you. And putting it out in the world for all of us to be able to share. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. It's, a, it's an honor. Thanks for having me.
0: Kenan Scott II's play Thoughts of a Colored Man is currently making its Broadway debut at the Golden Theater in New York City. It will be on stage through March. It is a must-see. You can find out more about all the other things Kenan is up to at KenanScott.com. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward
1: to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.
0: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day.